Happy New Year. Should we bow in prayer? Father, I thank you that you've given us the privilege of having your word. Lord, that you've given us your word to give us an understanding of life. Lord, we flounder like fish out of water, trying to find our direction apart from you. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us and preserved your word that we through the ages might come before you, that we might worship you, that we might appreciate you, that we might understand the life that we're living in. We pray that you would guide us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me this morning, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This morning we're going to take just an interview, a a brief look at the book of Ecclesiastes, a marvelous book on the purpose of life. And uh, it starts out, I will warn you, as a Debbie Downer. Uh, it will, uh, the first two-thirds of the message today will talk about the things where you don't find life, where life isn't. And then we'll be talking about the meaning of life a little later. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular courses. The wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. No man is able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one may say, see, it is new? Already it existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of the earlier things, and also there the latter things uh, which will occur. There will be, excuse me, and also of the latter things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. About a hundred years ago, the, one of the richest men in the world was W.F. Woolworth. He died in 1919, leaving his fortunes largely to his seven-year-old granddaughter, who was to receive them when she turned 21. In 1933, his granddaughter, uh, Barbara Hutton, turned 21. Barbara had a fortune, and she went on to own vast amounts of things. If you can imagine it, Barbara had a 59-room yacht. Now, I counted the rooms in my house this week, and I have either eight or nine, depending on whether you count the laundry room. But she had a 59-room yacht. She collected priceless works of art. One of her uh, Chinese cups sold for almost $18 million. Uh, Barbara also, uh, being one of the richest women in America, uh, sought personal happiness from the things that she had. And yet she could never find personal happiness. Uh, She thought she could find happiness in relationships, so she looked for happiness in marriages. She had seven of them. She married a prince. She married a, uh, 
a um, count, and she also was married to the actor Cary Grant for a while. And yet in all of these relationships, Barbara was never content. She never found satisfaction. She never found meeting. She never found fulfillment. Though Barbara could afford the finest chefs and the best food in the world, she was an anorexic. She died at age 66, weighing less than 100 pounds. Barbara Hutton, for all that she had, for the social status, for the, the uh, possessions, for the pleasures that she was able to enjoy, never found happiness or contentment or meaning in life. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's attempt to find meaning in a world that is seemingly senseless. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon takes us on his journey to discover what really matters in life. And so this morning, as we turn to in chapter 1, we'll begin looking. First of all, he begins in verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of, the, of uh, David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And when we talk about vanity, we're not talking about the thing you said at to comb your hair. We're not even here talking about pride. The word vanity here comes from a Hebrew word which means breath or mist. It, it uh, comes, uh, it's found 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, uh, all of life, and he's assuming without God, is like a breath. Vanity means a breath or a mist or a vapor. Uh, as you blow your, your breath out on a cold winter's morning and you see the, 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 the fog, the steam that, that quickly disperses, and Ecclesiastes uses the comparison of your life and my life to a mist in at least three ways. We find that, first of all, like a mist, our lives vanish quickly. They're there for a moment and they're gone. Do you look at your life and mine over time? We're on the stage for a minute and we're gone. Someone else replaces us. It also uses the, uh, the comparison with mist in another way. Just like mist, our lives uh, fail to leave any lasting results after we depart. You breathe out your breath in this cold winter air, and it's there. It quickly departs, but when it's gone, there, there's nothing. It just disperses. There's a third way in which uh, Ecclesiastes compares our lives to a mist, and, and it, it's the fact that life is elusive. Uh, you can't get a handle on it. You can't grab it. You can't can't understand it completely. You can't comprehend it. And so, like a mist, your life and mine proceeds. The question is, what does it mean? We're here so shortly. Uh, we seem to leave no lasting results when we, go, when we go. And it's hard to understand why things happen the way they do while we are here. In verses 3 to 11, he says that our lives are short and have no lasting impact. He says, what advantage does a man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? He says, uh, it, it's a, a rhetorical question expecting the answer, very little. You and I leave very little behind. And he says, what advantage do we have? In the end, we don't have any advantage. He says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same. He goes on and says, uh, one generation comes after another passes onto the scene, departs from the scene. But the universe continues on in a monotonous way. It just continues on the same day after day. The sun rises and the sun sets. The sun rises and the sun sets. The wind and the water cycles continue on unchanged from generation to generation. 
He goes on and says in verse 8, uh, all continues on with monotonous regularity, but we're really never satisfied. We always want to see more when we hear more, even though life is monotonous. Verse uh, 9, he says, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one may say, see, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before. And you say, hold it, whoa, 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 whoa. Technology's new, isn't it? The world continues to develop new technology, and that is true. And then it ends up on the ash heap of history. I can remember just in the recording part. When I was young, everybody listened to records, the 78s. And then they went to the 33s. And then they went to the 45s. And then records were old hat. We went to reel-to-reel discs, tape discs. And then we went from that to what they call, what were they, Super 8s or those, those things. And then they went to cassettes. And then we went from cassettes to, to uh, CDs. And now you can't buy a car with a CD player in it. <laughs> we're saying as technology comes, technology goes. But it never stays for long. And what's more with that technology... Uh, it ends up on the ash heap of history. The atoms which made up this, this end up being a part of the next, but things just come on, continue on the same time, over time. He says in verse 11, um, he says, There is no remembrance of the early things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be no remembrance among those who will come later still. Uh, what he's saying here is that uh, when we're gone, we're gone. People aren't going to remember. Um, I remember, and I've shared this story before, it really made an impact on me when I was a seventh grader. We went as a youth group from the church out to an old rural church uh, that no longer held service. In fact, it was falling apart and it was dilapidated. And around that, in front of that church was an old cemetery. And in that cemetery, uh, we see nothing but weeds and garbage and everything there in the cemetery. Broken headstones, some which you could read, some which you couldn't read. And as I am there as a seventh grader on a warm spring day, and the sun's out and the, the clouds are floating by, and there are the mountains in the distance, I see the headstone of a woman who died in 1870. See, and the headstone of another person who died in 1867. And I'm sitting there as a youth looking at this, and it all of a sudden impacted me. This person here, nobody knows who she was. Nobody knows her hopes, her dreams, her aspirations, her, her, her hurts, her joys. Nobody remembers them. Nobody knows who she is. Even her great-great-great-great-great-grandkids probably don't even know she existed or know where she's buried. And here we are. Here's a person who grew up in this little valley. She looked at these same clouds or similar clouds going over a blue sky just like I'm looking at them. She looked out at those beautiful mountains just like I'm looking at them as the sun shone upon them. She lived. She grew up. She grew through. She had her crushes in her teen years. She gets married, probably has children, grandchildren. She grows old and decrepit. She dies. She's gone. And that's what he's saying here. 
There's no remembrance of those things which have gone before. And neither will there be of those of us who come later. Uh, Mark Twain, I think, said it best when he said, The world will lament you for an hour and then forget you forever. They'll go to your funeral. Maybe your children will remember. Your grandchildren, very little. And you're gone. That's it. That's history. In the 1970s, how many, I find out how many of you are, how old you are. In the 1970s, Kansas sang a hit song called Dust in the Wind. How many of you remember Dust in the Wind? Well, there are a few of us old people here, okay? And the refrain is very, very interesting. He talks about his, his dreams, his hopes, his aspirations. He talks about all of that and, and, and how quickly it goes. And he, he says, all we are is dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. And then he talks about, he says, all my money can't buy it one moment more. And he talks about all of these things and he says, everything is dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. That's what Solomon is saying here in Ecclesiastes. Apart from God, all we are is dust in the wind. So we go on in this section. We see in verses 12 to 18 that, that even the pursuit of wisdom in itself and for itself is ultimately futile. Let's take a look at verses 12 to 15. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What he's saying is that for all the wisdom and all the learning that, that, uh, and all the knowledge, there's some things that will never change. My wisdom and my knowledge can never change certain things. The world is bent. The world is twisted. People are twisted. Yeah, and for all of it, there, will, there continues to be on things that we can't fix. Crime, social injustice, racism, greed, cruelty, and the list goes on. We can't change it because the problem is in the human heart. We will never change the human heart through education and political activism. The fact is, people are flawed. The world is flawed. It has been for generations. The philosophers and the leaders throughout the ages have tried to fix the problem. But the problem is us. He goes on in verses 16 and 17. He says, I said, therefore, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I have set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is a striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is also much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. He's saying that increased wisdom and knowledge result in increased grief and pain. He says this solution isn't simply knowing more. When we leave God out of the picture, increasing knowledge simply leads to increasing futility and a sense of hopelessness. Um, famed philosopher Bertrand Russell and uh, the great scientist Albert Einstein got together and issued a statement two years, or not two years, two days before Einstein's death. And in their statement they said this, and I quote, those who know the most are the gloomiest about the future, 
end of quote. Those who know the most, this well-known famous philosopher, this arguably one of the greatest of all time scientists, these two men got together with their massive brains and their conclusion was, the more we know, the more discouraged we become. And so the answer isn't simply in more knowledge. It's not in education. It's not simply in knowing more. In chapter 2, Solomon then goes on to somehow find meaning or significance in the pursuit of pleasure and possessions. And he's going to end up concluding that that too is futile. He begins in in chapter 2. He says, And I said to myself, Come now, and I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? He said, well, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to have a ball. I'm going to go out there and enjoy it all. And he found that looking for life in laughter doesn't produce meaning or fulfillment. In Proverbs, we find even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. He's saying, these things don't remove the pain in the heart. Uh, I just reflecting this week of all the comedians, the well-known comedians who have died as a result of suicide. Uh, Robin Williams being the classic, the one that you may be the most familiar with, but there are many, many others. Here's a man who laughed a lot, who made everybody else laugh, but he couldn't deal with the pain in his heart, and he ended it all. We go on that uh, in verse 3. He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. I'd like to see that. But anyhow, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there was in the sons of men to do under the heavens the few years of their lives. He tried to find happiness in a bottle. A lot of people try to find happiness in a bottle only to find out whether it's a bottle of booze or a bottle of pills, or perhaps in a syringe, uh, there's no happiness. It only makes things worse. In verses 4 to 8, he looks for life in stuff. And a lot of people are looking for meaning and significance in their stuff, what they own, what they possess, and what they can do with it. And we see in uh, verse 4 and following, he says, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, and I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasure of men many concubines. Solomon here obviously is disobeying God in several areas, but so have you and I in our attempts to somehow find happiness, pleasure, or significance. And we see that he looks in a number of things. First of all, he built beautiful homes and vineyards, magnificent gardens, parks, and fruit trees, had countless servants, huge flocks and herds, and lots and lots of gold and silver. We look at 1 Kings 10 14, and don't turn there, we find that Solomon brought in about 25 tons of gold each year. That's about 800,000 ounces or about $1.5 billion worth of gold. 
That's not a bad average salary, is it? I think you can build any house you want with that, right? <laughs> and you can buy about you can buy any chariot from the dealer that you can find. And uh, finest horses. Solomon found that happiness is not found at the mall or at the chariot shop or in the sporting goods store. The Wall Street Journal had an op-ed that said this, Money may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. We see that in the, in the lives of people who have money. And I just, this week I just reflected on so many and I just picked a few that I'm sure you all know, but there's so many, many more. Michael Jackson, Prince, Elvis Presley, and the list goes on. All, in quotes, had it all and lived miserable lives. Found it wasn't worth it in the end. Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, who was the first one to produce mass-produced cars, uh, Henry Ford had a lot of money. And toward the end of his life, he said this, I was happier as a mechanic working in a shop. He has all of this. He owns Ford Motor Company. And I was happier as a mechanic. Happiness is not found in stuff. Verse 8, we also see that he was looking for happiness and entertainment. He had all these singers and all of these musicians and stuff, uh, yet it didn't fill the void in his heart. Some of you are looking for fulfillment and entertainment. Some of you spend a lot of money on concerts or ball games or fancy vacations, but then you come home with the same old problems. Still problems in the family, problems on the job, problems with health. And so entertainment doesn't fit the bill. He goes on in verse 8 and he, he uh, talks about all these concubines. Again, the Bible forbids uh, the king to have many wives, concubines. Solomon disobeyed God, thinking that happiness is found where God wouldn't let him go. So he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can we say that Solomon had access to unlimited sexual pleasure? Yet unlimited sex didn't satisfy the emptiness of his soul. Time magazine of all publications said this. When sex is pursued only for pleasure or to fill a void in the soul, it becomes elusive, impersonal, and ultimately disappointing. You think sexes and relationships are where it's at? It isn't. I've talked to two young men over the years, one in his 20s, one in his 30s, who are living the hookup culture, string of endless, meaningless relationships. And both of them, interestingly, use the same words, though I didn't talk to them at the same time. They both says, sex has become boring. Sex has become boring. It's meaningless. There's nothing there. That's what Solomon found. 
Sex pursued for satisfaction, pleasure, or meaning, purpose is nothing. In verses 9 through 11, he summarizes this section on pleasure and possessions. And he says, starting uh, verse 9, he says, "Then Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all of my labor. And this was my reward for my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, emptiness, a striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. In other words, there was no meaning there, there was no satisfaction, there was no purpose. Comedian Ralph Barton made lots of people laugh over the years. And yet, shortly before taking his own life, he wrote this. He said, I've had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I have gone from wife to wife, from house to house, and have visited the great countries of the world. But I'm fed up with devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. Life doesn't taste. Life is bland. Life is boring when pursued as an end in itself. One of the more interesting quotes that all of you, I'm sure, will recognize was from quarterback Tom Brady. After winning his third Super Bowl, Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes, and on that interview, he asked the question, I quote, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I, I, I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reach my goal, my dream in life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. End of quote. The interviewer then asked the question, uh, what is the answer? Tom Brady simply said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. The things that you and I tend to pursue, those who've gotten them, don't find purpose and meaning or fulfillment in them. In fact, they end in dead ends. By the way, it does get happier after we get off Debbie Downer here. (laughs) Okay, I told you at the beginning, two-thirds is Debbie Downer, but uh, at the end, we get the sweetness. Okay? Um, Starting in chapter 2, verse 12. So I I turned to consider wisdom and madness, for what will the man do who's come after the king, who will come after the king, except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels darkness as light excels, uh, wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise uh, man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them all. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then I've been, I've been extremely wise. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days uh, all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, the work which had been done under the sun, and was 
it, it was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. He acknowledges in verse 12 to 17 that, that wisdom and foolishness, uh, the wise and the foolish, both die. He acknowledges that, that it's better to be wise in the sense uh, as in life you don't fall into the pitfalls of life. You don't keep banging your head into the wall because you can see, but you know in the end you're no different than the, than the fool. You and, and the man end up in the same place. I know of a man who knew, 30, knew 34 languages. He's smarter than I am. I know another man knows 23. But you know what? The man who knew 34 languages is now dust in the wind. He's in a grave. What he's saying is knowledge and wisdom can be temporarily beneficial. But in the end, we go to the same place. Verses 18 to 23, we end this, this depressive section. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had done under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for that which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored for them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get for all of his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his, day, because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. What he's saying here to kind of sum this section up is we can't take it with us. In the world we came naked and we depart naked. Dust we are and dust we become. And apart from God, it's all meaningless. Everything that you and I have worked so hard to accumulate is gone. The kids will take it. What they don't want will end up in a garbage bag in some landfill. All those treasured pictures and those precious memories, all those little knickknacks that you that you kept because they meant something to you, don't mean anything to anybody else. And he's saying here, we can't take it with us. He says we can't protect it either. We spend our whole life working and slaving and saving money and building a business and establishing a home. In the end, we leave it to someone who didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. Probably don't deserve it. They may not use it wisely. They may lose it all like Solomon's son lost everything he accumulated. In fact, it might even ruin them like it ruined Barbara Hutton. He goes on and says we don't fully enjoy life because of the struggle we have to accumulate and protect the things we, we gather. He says, he's saying the stress, the worry, the physical and mental toil leave us exhausted. We worry about how to best manage and protect what we've accumulated. We know that we might lose our job or our business might fail or somebody might embezzle our money or steal it from us. The stock market may crash. We may lose it to runway inflation. We keep trying to protect it. 
The conclusion he has in this section is work and wealth provide no lasting meaning and happiness in themselves. John D. Rockefeller um, was the head of Standard Oil. Toward the end of his life, he was making a million dollars a week back then. How many would settle for a million dollars a week in your salary? By the way, let me tell you the rest of the story. That's $20 million a week in today's economy. So he was making $20 million a week, and yet his health, because of all the stress and everything, and yet his health allowed him to eat only the bare minimum. At the end, he weighed less than 100 pounds. He was the richest man in the world at the time, and he didn't even have the ability to enjoy his food. Lee Iacocca, and I kind of like Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca is a sharp guy. I don't think he's a believer, but he uh, one time was the head of Ford Motor Company. Later, he, he became the head of Chrysler. And he writes in his book, Straight Talk, the following, and I quote, Here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. He's where all of us think we would want to be, isn't he? Well, Jack Higgins, who wrote the book, The Eagle Has Landed, among other things, he says, when you get to the top, there's nothing there. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. What they're saying is that apart from, that they're all leaving God out of the picture. Apart from God, nothing matters. Life does not taste. It is bland. Ultimately becomes boring and leaves us with a sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness. And these are from people, I've been quoting these people intentionally. I could have quoted a bunch of others. I've been quoting them because other people are where you think you want to be. And that's not where it is. Meaning and fulfillment only come when we put God in the picture. And we're going to now address some things. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The bad news or the good news first? Bad news. The bad news is I'm not going to be able to answer all of the questions. You want to know what the good news is? It does answer some of them. Okay? So we are going to answer some, and we're going to leave you with a satisfactory answer, hopefully. Verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 26, or 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have the enjoyment without him? Boy, that's true, isn't it? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has even given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. He says two things there. Uh, first of all, God wants us to enjoy life. Some of us, and I have to include myself, have been such a driver throughout life that I've never taken time to sit down and smell the flowers. Some of us are driving and striving because it may be for money, it may be for for recognition, it may be for fame, it may be for a sense of self-importance. 
for one thing or another is driving us, and we never take time to enjoy the good things that God has given us. God wants you and I to enjoy life, but you never will enjoy life if you're looking at those things in themselves. It's only when we recognize them as a gift from the good hand of a loving God that they mean anything. If you try to find meaning in the things that's not there. Give you any, my wife is a great cook. There are so many things I could tell you that I like. I like her fruitcake, but you won't identify with that. But anyhow, uh, she makes the best freezer jam. I mean, that is good stuff. But if I try to find meaning and purpose in eating freezer jam, in the end, is not going to fulfill me, is it? But if I see that it is my wife who made this because she knows I like it, and it's a gift of love from her, that freezer jam means something, doesn't it? It means something. And when we enjoy life and the good things of life as a gift from God, recognizing they come from a, a God who loves us and a God who's provided them for us, He's not only provided the things, He's given us the taste buds and the eyesight and the ears and the feeling and the touch and all of this to enjoy, the sense of smell. It's not the freezing jam that has meaning. It's the one who provided it. In the things of life, it's not the things of life. It's the one who provided it. First of all, we must accept that God doesn't tell us everything, though, about life. He's not going to give us a full purpose. We are like Job. God didn't tell Job everything. He allows him to go through things in life, but his choices make a difference. Like Job, we also are in a cosmic conflict that we're not told a whole lot about. This morning, I, in fact, sat down and counted 47 times in the Bible where it talks about us being in a cosmic conflict. And I didn't talk, count the demon possession passage and those kind of things. We are in a, in a battle. We see that battle, first of all, in Genesis 3. The choice that Adam and Eve made... Enjoyment versus trusting and obeying God. The devil wanting them to join the forces of rebellion. Don't trust God. Or trust God even though you don't understand. God told some things, but, but hey, I don't understand the reason. Their choice had... Unbelievable consequences. Job didn't understand what was going on in his life. And yet, he was playing a major role within that cosmic conflict, the forces of evil versus God. Uh, we see in Luke chapter 15 that the angels are looking in. There's so many passages. The angels are watching. And he says there's rejoicing among the angels in heaven when one person comes into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We see in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm. We see in James chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Resist him. How? What? We see in 1 Peter 5, be on guard, um, because the devil, like a roaring lion, is seeking someone to devour I'm not going to give you the 47 I looked at this morning, okay? But we're in a cosmic conflict. And the choices we make have significance. 
By the way, God only things can happen to us what God permits, even as he did with Job. But God says, I tell you some things, but I'm not going to tell you anything or everything. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. There are secret things that God doesn't tell us, but he does tell us certain things. One of the things he tells us here is he wants us to enjoy life. To the praise of his glory, recognizing it from his hand. Six times in Ecclesiastes, he's, he gives it meaning. In chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, we read, He has set everything uh, appropriate, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. God has set eternity in our hearts, but certain things he doesn't want us to know. But it goes on. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all that is labor. It is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Therefore, there is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. This is the second part that we see frequently. God wants us not to be afraid of him, but to have a healthy respect, a healthy fear of him. And that works out in obedience. I want you to, uh, now to look and see what it says on the uh, screen on Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The conclusion, the end of, the end of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden whether good or bad we've seen two things enjoy life but in your enjoying fear God the message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters what he is saying in Ecclesiastes is that everything matters he's saying that God will evaluate Everything, including the motivations of our heart. In First Corinthians chapter four, it says, "But I wait, and but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both, uh, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of people's hearts. The things that you and I do are making a statement. The choices that you and I make are making a statement. Where am I at in this cosmic conflict, and who am I? Who is my Lord?" 1 Corinthians 15:58 Therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain is not meaningless in the Lord It's not that nothing matters it's that everything matters and the most important thing that matters is what you do with Jesus Christ God sent his son will I bow before him receiving as my Lord and Savior putting my faith in him or will I continue in my rebellion it's all about me and joining the forces of rebellion as Satan would have us will I receive Christ in faith or won't I I recognize God works in our hearts to draw us but what will I do 1 John 5 and the testimony is this that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has the life he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 
These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The real question in the end is what will we do with Jesus? If you receive him, if you know him, you have, a forb- you have forgiveness. You have a complete pardon from the, from the master against whom you rebelled, from the maker who made you, provides for you, whose hand you have rejected in the past. In fact, you've rebelled against. If you receive Christ, there's a complete pardon. We need to all consider Mark 8:36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So what is the lesson from Ecclesiastes? Life matters. What are the two things we should take from it? Enjoy life. Even though you may not understand it all, enjoy it. Enjoy it and thank the giver. It's not all about the jelly. It's about the giver of the jelly. Right? Second of all, uh, enjoy life. Second of all, fear God. Trust and obey. In the end, it makes a difference, though you may not understand. What is communion about? Communion is a proclamation, a recognition of the love of God and the ultimate provision for the forgiveness of our sins. God is not some cosmic tyrant. He is a loving Lord. And we see in the Bible that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5 says, But God proves his love toward us, and that while we were yet or still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. Communion is simply an act of worship, an expression of gratitude, a recognition of our identification with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is saying, Yes, Lord, I'm trusting Christ and Him alone to save me from my sin. Let's take the elements. Let's take just a moment to bow in prayer first. To say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I can be forgiven. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that my life does count.